This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is South Paul. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today, Paul and I are presenting to you our take on UFC 245, Usman vs. Covington. And unlike other analyses or breakdowns you might find online, what we try to do here on Southpaw Fight Studies is to try and teach the listeners combat sports to educate fans. So if you train, it might be insights you were never explicitly taught. And if you don't train, consider it like sabermetrics or understanding the intricacies of strategy and play that hardcore fans of other sports understand about their own sport. Like in football, typical fans understand pass completion percentages, or in basketball, a triple-double. In combat sports, we're still at the embryonic stage of, he's an animal, or a wild man. UFC 245 had a whopping three title fights. The main event pitting bitter rivals Kamaru Usman versus Kobe Covington. The symbolism of this main event only added to the immensity and the stakes. You had the African immigrant champion Kamaru Usman fighting the far-right white conservative Kobe Covington. Paul reminded me we had something similar with Anderson Silva versus Chael Sonnen, but that was a different political climate. And Sonnen, to his credit, had wit and charisma. Covington doesn't have that. So in their place, he brings hate and spite. A true Trump-era conservative. And with the recent UK elections going conservative and the anti-immigrant sentiment, the gravity of this fight became that much greater. Like I said, the symbolism added to the immensity of the event. And coming into the fight, Covington felt it. Walking to the cage, Covington was taking some deep breaths, which is unusual for him. He wasn't tired. He was trying to control his heart rate. Boxing coaches have talked about this for a while, how they don't want their fighters to talk shit if they can't handle the pressure it creates for themselves. If you thrive in that environment, do it. If you can't, don't make it harder on yourself. One of the things I was concerned about going into this fight is the coaching style of Henry Hooft, who is Usman's head coach. Being at ATT, Covington was going to come in with a good game plan. Hoof's camp has been criticized for lack of game planning, which Hoof says he doesn't believe in. The other criticism is the bad coaching from Hoof when his fighters are losing. But there's a reason people train with Henry Hoof, because he gets people good at striking very quickly, much like Rafael Cordero does at King's MMA. And similar to Cordero, Hooft uses motivational coaching rather than getting overly technical. But where Cordero keeps encouraging you when the going gets tough, Hooft admonishes you. And some athletes like that. The racist narrative about Usman has all been about his brawn. And with Covington, his mind games. Much like in that movie, Get Out, where there's that famous dinner scene where the racist younger brother tells the black boyfriend how He can overcome his brawn with his intellect using jiu-jitsu, using MMA. So, Chris, what's your sport? Football? Baseball? Basketball, mostly. I guess. You an MMA fan? Dude. Dude, what? What? Hey, Jeremy, why don't we uh, let someone else have the floor for a second? You're dating my sister, right? He's dating my sister, you had your chance. I can't get to know the guy. You mean like UFC? Yes. Yeah, nah, too brutal for me. You ever get in a street fight as a kid? I did judo after school, first grade. Aw. You should have seen me. 
Judah. <laughs> with your frame and your genetic makeup, if you really pushed your body, and I mean really trained, you know, no pussyfooting around, you'd be a fucking beast. The thing about jujitsu is strength doesn't matter, right? It's all about this. It's a strategic game, like chess. It's all about being two, three, four moves ahead. Cool. Stand, stand, stand up. Jeremy, uh, no karate at the dinner table. It's not karate, mom. Yo, I got a rule. No, no, no play fighting with drunk dudes. I don't play. I'm just gonna. Jeremy. I wasn't gonna hurt him. And the way that brother talked in that movie. That's MMA commentating. But the reason why Hoof's style of coaching works so well with Usman is because Usman is such an intelligent and composed fighter. Usman makes his own adaptations and reads during the fight. Where Hoof comes in is, having watched Usman find success, he pinpoints what's working and what he needs to focus on in the fight. This is how they make a great team. One of the things Paul and I were hoping Usman would utilize in this fight were his body shots and his front kicks. And right off the bat, Usman went to front kicks. He uses it to prevent rushes, to range find, and also hurt his opponents to the body. And as far as kicks are concerned, Usman throws high kicks, some body kicks, but rarely any leg kicks. Leg kicks are something Covington doesn't utilize a lot of either, but that makes sense to their style of pressing forward. Both fighters thus rely a lot on jabs. When Covington did throw body kicks, Usman would sweep them across his body, much like Jorge Masvidal. This allows Usman to remove the kick as an obstacle to him coming forward. This could have also made Covington more gun-shy about throwing body kicks and leg kicks. The best chance to hurt Usman is in the first round, as, without a game plan, the first round is pivotal in gathering data, and that's when Covington had some of his best moments, hurting Usman as he was stand switching. But right away, we saw Usman's composure. Even getting hurt, he was right back to business, finding body shot opportunities early in the first round. Covington, however, was getting excited and loading up. And that is not what makes Covington a good fighter. He's at his best when he uses noodle arms where he keeps his arms and shoulders relaxed, moving them like wet noodles in front of his body, then whipping strikes at high volume. But that doesn't work when he loads up. As Usman began to get a read on Covington, he was starting to land stiff jabs, front kicks, body shots, and right straights. His right straight is one of the straightest right hands in all of MMA. His hand leaves his shoulder in a straight line, which is hard to read and hard to see, because it's just a fist getting bigger before it hits you. Covington relies a lot on feints. This is the key also to Israel Adesanya and Alexander Volkanovsky. Usman doesn't really feint. Why he lands is because his techniques are so crisp. They get to where they need to be quickly, and he doesn't give tells. The point of feinting is to ultimately bait a reaction to land something they won't see. Another way to do that is to strike in a way they won't see precision technique, which people didn't associate with Usman because of the narrative that he's just a quote-unquote physical beast who muscles everything. So along with his right straight, all the other offensive techniques that Usman utilizes are things of beauty, just really straight movements. He isn't a defensive wizard, but Usman's offense, his strikes, his counter-strikes, and his takedowns are all incredibly efficient. It's MMA's version of a triple-double. All the ways to be offensively sound. And that's one of the things that Henry Hooft is really good at. Making his fighters offensive strikers. With Covington, he's known for his volume and pace. But there is such a thing as too much pace and volume. Because what happens then is you begin to do the work of your opponent. What I mean by this is, without them having to throw a single strike, you're giving them information on range, distance, and timing. And you're also constantly giving your opponent opportunities to counter once they learn your timing. 
Usman began to utilize the uppercut as a counter to Covington's constant in and out. The uppercut would come to the body and to the head. To make his attacks more unpredictable, Usman constantly changed where he was attacking. Body-head, head-body. Only things missing were leg kicks and takedowns. And the thing that's nice about a technique like an uppercut is, you can instantly change the target in the middle of the strike, to the body or to the head. There's no other punch you can do that with. This is why if you get good at uppercuts, it becomes really difficult for your opponents to avoid them. But an uppercut is a close-range move. And when you're in an open stance, orthodox versus southpaw, you're furthest away from each other. So how do you land an uppercut? Well, even though you're far, if you both throw the rear hands, you're both coming at each other in the same lane, essentially running into each other. This is also why you see headbutts from this foot positioning. Usman quickly utilized that as an opportunity to not only land uppercuts and body shots, but also to grab collar ties and tie clinches to land knees and punches. It would have been perfection if he also used that to land elbows or to land a sneaker overhand on breaks. That's a Jack Dempsey coined move where on clinch breaks, you have a small window to punch over their shoulder and land unprotected. Even by the beginning of the second round, the body shots were starting to add up. And Covington was having a hard time predicting the attacks. From the second round on, Usman took control of the fight. Covington's best shot at winning was to land more volume, even if that meant he would have to keep getting hurt in the process. Take a shot to land a shot. This is why Covington's face started to get marked up, and eventually his jaw broken. And several times in the fight, Covington actually faked an eye injury to buy time when he was legitimately hurt. Joe Rogan is the guy who says Covington is just putting on an act. Rogan is also the guy who says fighting reveals who you really are. Well, in the fight, with faking injuries, Covington revealed his true character. He's a liar. Even saying he puts on an act is to say he's a liar. At the end of round three, we find out in the corner that Covington's jaw is broken. And what does his head coach Conan Silvera do? He wipes sweat off of his own face and then uses that same towel to wipe Covington's mouth. I added that picture as the cover art for this episode so you can see for yourself. Now, was this just poor hygiene? Was this the deep state working from within to undermine Colby Covington? Does Conan Silvera secretly hate Colby Covington? I don't know. But of all the moments in that fight, that moment said everything to me about the clusterfuck that is Colby Covington. And only the eagle eyes of Southpaw was able to notice it. It's critical theory, y'all. Round four with a broken jaw, Covington came out desperate to finish the fight. That lasted about 30 seconds. Then Usman took over the fight once again. But the overreaction from the UFC commentators made you think every punch that Usman blocked almost knocked him out. And I have to mention that Joe Rogan's commentary for this event was so awful, he was trending on Twitter. Now I understand baseball fans when they complain about a legacy commentator who is so bad, but keeps their job because that's who everyone is used to. Rogan is like R. Stephen A. Smith, except less funny. And now that the sport of MMA is getting older, and we understand it more as a sport, we are also starting to realize more and more that commentating is also a skill. And right now in the UFC, Commentators can't differentiate between a competitive fight and a close fight. These are not the same. You could have a basketball game or a football game that's competitive, but that's not close. And that can mean a lot of things. There's also the conflict of interest. Rogan is the most powerful podcaster in the world and the most powerful voice in independent media. Fighters constantly ask to be on his podcast. They can't focus on the fight. They can't talk about MMA. All they can think about when they see Joe Rogan interviewing them is, how can I get on his show? And this is more important than them having a chance to talk to the fans or calling out their next opponent. Because really, getting on JRE is that much more important for their career. So other commentators don't want to disagree with Rogan. So his bad commentating influences everyone, 
there were several fights where DC and the rest of the viewing audience clearly saw one person winning. Then Rogan convinced DC he was wrong and that the other fighter was winning. And DC changed his mind. It's unconscious, but people have that bias around powerful people. They tend to want to agree with them. They want to get on their good side. Dana White is powerful within the UFC, but Rogan is powerful in the world. And that brings with it that unconscious bias for people around him. And also, they don't want Rogan stands to attack them online. People are always constantly complaining about the lack of fairness in the sport. But you won't have fair commentating with Rogan still there. It's like having the Prince of Abu Dhabi there as a commentator and thinking people will not placate to him. This will just make everybody worse. Now, how did Usman versus Covington eventually end? By the fifth round, it became evident that Covington was not good on the back foot. He tends to dash in on his offense. This is where Usman would hurt him on the exit. And also, body shots work on Kobe Covington. And all the animosity and the hype that was built up around the fight hurt Covington more than it did for Usman. It backfired. Because Usman always looked like the fresher fighter, especially by the fifth round. Now, without an ability to call for any more timeouts when he was hurt, Covington got finished by strikes by Kamaru Usman in the fifth round. It's poetic justice that Covington needs to get his jaw wired shut. In the post-fight interview, you could tell Usman, who is normally apolitical, was bothered by the narrative that he's only a physical specimen. Or even just being thought of as a specimen was hurtful to him. And Covington, the white fighter, was known as the mastermind. It's the bullshit of, quote unquote, a strong beast getting tired and the smart fighter outlasting them, outsmarting them. So Usman made it a point that he's the best, not because of his physical strength, but because of his mental strength. And it's true. He had to endure a lot. And now as the champion, just like Tyron Woodley, he's annoyed at how he's treated and talked about as a black champion. He gets what Woodley was feeling. But that's not only Woodley. Demetrius Johnson was also treated poorly. Kevin Lee has talked about this. Black fighters are treated as caricatures who complain too much. It's fucked up. And because Covington fought with a broken jaw, I know the commentary isn't over. He'll be valorized as a hero. I know Rogan will talk about it for weeks and bring it up every time Covington is brought up. Just like whenever Alex Jones is mentioned, Rogan always has to mention that, hey, Alex Jones is always right. And already he always brings up with Covington the underdog story that Covington had his back against the ropes in Brazil and came up with that MAGA gimmick on the spot to save his career. And the only source for this info is Joe Rogan. And even if Covington says this, what do we know about Covington? He's a liar. If you've watched enough of Joe Rogan's show, he basically believes anything you tell him. Like the story about the 12 to 6 elbow, everybody believes that became a rule because Rogan states it as a fact that it was after some commission watched a ice-breaking demonstration where a karate guy broke a block of ice with his elbow and they thought it was too dangerous. But where did Rogan get this? He heard it a long time ago from Big John McCarthy. And when Big John McCarthy was asked about it, he was like, I think that's what I remember hearing. But whenever a journalist investigated it, there's never been any proof that this is what happened. And even in this fight, look, Covington wanted to quit. He faked injuries. And Conan said no and used his own sweat to wipe Covington's mouth to say shut up. Next up, we have the co-main event in which Alexander Volkanovsky beat Max Holloway by unanimous decision. This is the second title that City Kickboxing has claimed this year, which is quite an accomplishment for a gym located in Auckland, New Zealand, not traditionally known as an MMA hotbed. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it's the same gym that Israel Adesanya, Dan Hooker, and Kai Kara France all train out of. Their head coach and co-founder, Eugene Behrman boldly predicted that Volkanovski has all the tools to become champion when he faces off against Holloway, and son of a bitch, he was right. 
Holloway has had a rough 2019. He lost in April against Dustin Poirier for the interim lightweight title, but bounced back against Frankie Edgar in July. Despite going 1-2 this year, it's important that we really take a 5,000 feet view of Holloway's career. To give you some perspective, Holloway has been in the UFC since 2012, and at the time of his debut, he was the youngest fighter on the roster. Of his 26 fights as a professional, 22 of them have been in the UFC. To do some quick math, he's had about 65 rounds of fighting in the UFC alone, averaging around 325 minutes. In other words, he has over 5 hours of footage that coaches, trainers, and other fighters can pull up and dissect. When you really lay out the numbers, it's amazing how well Holloway has been able to transform, adapt, and stay on top of the competition for so long. Even though he's no longer champion, he still holds the records for the longest winning streak in UFC featherweight division history, the most wins in UFC featherweight division, and most knockouts and TKO wins in the featherweight division. When you fight for as long as he has, it makes sense that a diligent coach and capable fighter will be able to figure out his habits and tendencies. City kickboxing has shown that if you give them time to build up their fighters, they can produce champions. Holloway has been able to do as well as he did with no other high-level fighters in his camp. Training out of Gracie Technics in Honolulu, Hawaii, he has been able to game plan and beat 21 different opponents. I don't want to write off his camp and approach after a rough year. We've seen him bounce back from tougher losses. Let's not forget that he was finished in his UFC debut by Poirier and lost pretty convincingly against Conor McGregor. Since then, he's rattled off a 13 win streak, which is 14 if you go just by featherweight fights, and he won the title against Jose Aldo. He cleaned out the division as a contender before becoming featherweight king. He's clearly been able to do something right, so let's give him some time to reflect and adjust before his entire process is written off. Switching gears, let's talk about Volkanovski. Volkanovski is blessed to have so many other UFC fighters to count among his training partners, and he definitely has the fight IQ and physical talents to go very far as a featherweight. Despite being on the shorter end of the division, Volkanovski's reach isn't terrible, and at 71 inches, it's about average among his peers. As a stockier fighter with a wrestling and rugby background, it's almost expected that he would want to get as close to the cage so he can hurt you with strikes before engaging in clinches to take you down. Surprisingly, Volkanovski is very adept at fighting on the outside and may have given the blueprint on how fireplugs like himself can play the distance game. The main weapons that Volkanovski uses from far range are the low kicks and the long jabs. Volkanovski loves throwing the lead inside low kicks, and he won't hesitate to throw it on the outside if he thinks he's becoming too predictable. When he wasn't throwing the kicks, he was leading with his long stutter step jab. Even though opponents were expecting him to mix in hooks or wrestling shots, he went through long periods of fainting to draw out the counters and switch between just the jabs and the kicks. In the preview, I talked about how Volkanovski faints almost as well as Holloway, and he didn't disappoint in this fight. Against Chad Mendez and Jose Aldo, Volkanovski was able to get both guys to swing at air whenever he pressed forward with fainted jabs and low kicks, and leaving them open to follow-up strikes. The inside low kicks and jabs were an important part of Volkanovski's win over Holloway. Holloway's stance is very jab-heavy, and it leaves himself open to low kicks themselves. He was able to deal with this against Aldo by advancing forward with his lead leg turned slightly outwards in a more squared stance, ready to absorb the kicks. This worked wonders against Aldo because he was such an aggressive counter-striker who operated on a hair trigger, but he was also vulnerable to gassing out. No such thing happened against Volkanovski, who stayed composed and didn't headhunt. The leg kicks were adding up to the point where the normally smooth, stance-switching Holloway 
looked more flat-footed and fought entire rounds in the southpaw position. Not because he wanted to, but because his lead leg was absorbing too much damage. When Holloway did react and strike back, Volkanovski was ready with the right straight and cracked him a few times with it. This was the same straight that he hurt Mendez, Aldo, and Darren Elkins with. This sequence was a very smart move on Volkanovski's part, since getting Holloway to stop his fleet-footed movements meant half the battle was won. The other half will be won with his jabs. As mentioned before, Volkanovski's jabs are very sneaky. I don't mean sneaky in the sense that it's deceptive and comes out of nowhere. It's sneaky because you think he's too far and can't land it, only to have it smash into your face with more power than expected. Part of the reason he's able to disguise his jab so well is because it's hard to time. Fainting is a part of it, but the other is a stepping motion. Volkanovski will take long and short steps before throwing out the jab, and he disguises his quick jabs along with his powerful ones during the movement. For example, Volkanovski might take a big step only to feint, getting his opponents to throw out a counter. He'll try that again a few more times, only to add in a powerful jab, which he accomplishes by slightly moving his hips back and uncorking the strike. After a few of these attempts, Volkanovski then pumps the jab quickly, now focused on speed and irritating you more so than just accumulating damage. Switching back between fainting, power strikes, and quick jabs means that you're constantly at wit's end, unsure of what's to come. There is some precedent to this. Dela Hoya loved using the same motions to confuse his opponents, and Sergei Kovalev had success against Canelo Alvarez when he took long forward steps to pretend a straight right was coming, only to hit him with a powerful jab instead. This was also a favorite of Boss Rutten back in the day when he was competing in Pancras, and you could see it in Dwayne Ludwig and TJ Dillashaw. For his part, Holloway looked his usual self, but in the early goings, he was having a rough time with the low kicks and jabs. It took him and his corner a while to figure out that he should slam the lead line low kick whenever he got in close to stop Volkanovski from throwing the low kicks, but this wasn't done regularly until round 4. By then, Holloway's leg took quite a beating, and he had to fight most of the match in southpaw, a position where he's great with the left straights. However, a lot of his attacks are set up from jabs in the orthodox position, and due to the low kicks, this was harder to accomplish. Holloway also seemed to figure out that in the later rounds that he could time Volkanovski's low kicks with jabs to the head and body, but again, this plan came too late. He had moments of success, especially when he doubled up the jab and aimed some hooks and straights to the body, but his fixation on headhunting and the early damage he took to the legs really hampered his ability to mount a significant comeback. Plus, Volkanovski is a very durable guy that doesn't get tired easily. Even with the punches absorbed, he still stalked Holloway and made sure that he was constantly moving off his back foot. With Holloway no longer the champion, this opens up the division to a slew of contenders. Of course, the UFC might decide to give Holloway an immediate rematch, but assuming they don't do that, there's some intriguing matchups for Volkanovski. Perhaps the winner of the Frankie Edgar Korean zombie fight might be interesting, or we could see if Zabit is as good as his fans think he is. For Holloway, he might decide to fight a contender or two before challenging again for the title, or maybe he'll take the time off to bulk up slowly and try his hand at lightweight again. Despite being undersized and outgunned, he does prove an interesting style matchup against a lot of fighters at 155. And who wouldn't want to see him against the likes of Habib and Tony Ferguson? The third title fight on this card was Amanda Nunes versus Jermaine Durandamy for the women's bantamweight title. This is a rematch from when they both fought each other as prospects. Amanda Nunes, the champion, has deceptive reach. She reminds me a bit of Deontay Wilder in how she uses her right. She can throw it long. She can throw it short. She can throw it straight or looping from conventional angles and odd angles. So it's hard to tell when you're safe from that right. And for MMA purposes, Nunez tends to dip into her right, which gives her the option of shooting in for a takedown. Now, 
The first round looked very similar to Nunez versus Durandami 1, where after a takedown, Nunez finished the Iron Lady with ground and pound. And it almost happened again, but the referee was really lenient and allowed the Iron Lady to make it out of the first round. But it was domination on the ground from the halfway point. And it only got worse from there. The Iron Lady started to land more on the feet, which made Nunez shoot for the takedown that much sooner. And basically, every time Nunez shot in, she got the takedown, and the Iron Lady couldn't get up, spending the majority of every round on the ground. This doesn't mean the Iron Lady didn't have success on the feet. She blocked the majority of Nunez's punches by blocking with high forearms. She would also parry and counter or cover and counter, especially the right hand of Nunez. But since she was covering, she couldn't see and she couldn't underhook which made the takedowns that much easier. The Iron Lady also showed a taller fighter with a clinch game can be a problem for the Lioness. One interesting thing about Durandami was on the ground, she was able to parry Nunez's punches with her feet because Nunez likes to hover over her opponents and really rear back before she throws the punch. Also, Nunez showed she can get reckless on the ground getting caught in some submission attempts while going for a ground and pound without a defensive mindset. Nunez also got hurt with an upkick, which was something Mike Brown warned her about. The Iron Lady also showed Nunez had difficulty dealing with someone who could cut off the cage. This was an issue that appeared earlier in her career against Kat Zingano. Rogan kept saying in the commentary that the difference between Durandami and Nunez was in their BJJ. They definitely had BJJ differences, but that wasn't their biggest gap. And in fact, the Iron Lady did well recovering guard and going for submissions. Their biggest gap was in the wrestling. At the highest level of MMA, you can be a dominant champion with blue belt jiu-jitsu. But you won't be champion for long if you can't wrestle. The Iron Lady lost every round, losing a lopsided decision. Even being able to scramble back a few times and defending a couple takedowns would have paid huge dividends as that tires out the person trying to get the takedowns. And for Nunez, unlike other champions, she has not fallen in love with her right hand. So if it's not going her way, she'll take it to the ground. She will use that classic MMA strategy of taking the fight where the opponent is weak. But having really made a name for herself in MMA, this could set up the first women's boxing super fight between herself and boxing champion Clarissa Shields. And if a fight never materializes, that's okay, as just the idea of a super fight is enough to raise the name recognition of both fighters. And so far, that's what it appears to be, a way to raise publicity for themselves more than actual fight negotiations. Now, let's take a closer look at the other two fights on the main card. Marlon Moraes and Piotr Jan fought Jose Aldo and Uriah Faber, respectively. Moraes beat Aldo by the thinnest of split decisions, and Jan knocked out Faber in a fight that honestly wasn't all that close. For Aldo and Faber, their paths have crossed once before at WEC 48, where Aldo ripped apart Faber's lead leg and battered him to a unanimous decision win. Despite their long careers in WEC and UFC, they have only been on one other card together, and it was back in 2015 for UFC 194, when Aldo unsuccessfully defended his featherweight title against McGregor, and Faber was a featured fight on the prelims, and he defeated Frankie Sainz. It was odd to see them both at this point in their lives. Faber most recently came back from retirement, and felt that he had one more title run in him. Aldo was coming off a decision loss to the now featherweight champion Alexander Volkanovsky and thought that a drop to bantamweight might hold the answer to another chance at UFC gold. Even though both lost, it was the manner in which they were defeated that's interesting. Let's start with the Moraes-Aldo fight. Moraes had looked like a killer at bantamweight, being able to hit switch kicks at blinding speed, and utilizing fast starting movements to hit straights from different angles before opponents could figure out what's going on. Even with the recent move to American Top Team, 
Morais kept a lot of the lateral movements that he learned from Mark Henry's camp, and his speed looked as good as ever. Aldo was making his bantamweight debut, and many wondered aloud if the weight cut would be too much for him. Aldo is notorious for being big at featherweight, and has had a hard time getting down to the 145-pound limit. How was he going to handle an additional loss of 10 pounds? Surprisingly, it turned out that the drain on his body didn't seem to affect him too badly. Even against one of the quickest guys in the division, Aldo was able to take his best shots early in round 1 and spent rounds 2 and 3 stalking Morais, forcing him to constantly move laterally all while peppering him with jabs and straights to the body. Morais, for his part, was able to keep moving and make sure that Aldo didn't have time and luxury of being able to settle in and throw in low kicks. It was clear that Morais won the first and Aldo won the second. It would come down to how the third round was scored. Even though many fans and other fighters thought Aldo had done enough to win, Morais got the nod from the judges and scored a win over a former UFC champion. This was by no means an easy fight and it could have gone the other way for Aldo. Morais did well whenever he kept moving and found a place for his jabs, followed by hooks to the body. Aldo, for his part, did extremely well in pressuring Morais and forcing him to fight off the back foot, cutting off exit points and feeding him jabs and straights. Even with the loss, he still looked good enough to be a nightmare for others at 135. On the other hand, Faber looked like his usual self with the addition of a few new kicks that he added to his skill set. Given his build, Faber was never going to be a prolific or flashy kicker, but he threw just enough to be dangerous and mixed them in when he thought opponents would stand still long enough. Against a superior striker in Jan, Faber looked out of place and slow. Faber has been around since 2003, and his strengths are well known by now. He has the running right hand, power doubles against the cage, overhand rights, and guillotine chokes. For a period, this was more than enough to stay on top of everyone else at featherweight. However, Mike Brown came along and exposed a lot of holes in Faber's stand-up and wrestling game. Despite losing to him twice, Faber was convinced that the first loss was due to a fluke knockout and his rematch loss was due to him breaking both wrists. Against a superior striker in Aldo, Faber should have used his loss as a wake-up call to add in more feints to his game as well as better striking defense, and vary up his entries for his wrestling. However, he was still convinced that a few tweaks would be more than enough to keep his winning ways. Don't get me wrong, Faber's strengths are good, and very few people have an answer for his chokes once he has them locked in. It's just that his holes are exploitable because he's been fighting for so long in the same manner, and it's hard to get him to change. Contrast this with Aldo, who also started his MMA career a year after Faber did. Yes, he's younger than Faber, but it doesn't explain how he's still so scary. Aldo's ability to counter-strike with such speed and power is terrifying at any weight, and it's a skill set that follows him no matter the weight class, apparently. Faber's striking was always a way to set up his wrestling, and even though he scored knockdowns and hurt people on the feet, it was never the most technical or the fastest. Pyotr Jan is the more polished striker, and he has more tools when they're striking. Once he realized that Faber isn't as quick or as strong as he was in his prime, it was much easier to duck under his wild strikes and hurt him on the counter, not to mention taking down Faber himself. It was a swift kick to the face in round 3 that ended the night for Faber, as he lost due to a knockout. Fighting is cruel, and no matter what lie you have to tell yourself to keep going, the results speak for themselves. Even though you might feel that you have what it takes to be champion, the losses on your records reflect a reality that might not mesh with the one in your head. Aldo and Faber can keep fighting, possibly against guys that aren't necessarily in the top 10. They might even fight each other again for old time's sake. If there is a title run at bantamweight for either of them, it probably lies more so for Aldo than it does for Faber. Even if either gets another win or two, what do they have left to prove? Both have outstanding legacies and can safely retire knowing that at one point in time, they were the best in the world. At this juncture in their careers, 
it almost seems as if they're trying to prove to themselves more than the fans that they have what it takes to become number one one more time. Nothing is impossible, but I can't imagine how much damage their bodies have already taken. Faber is 40 years old, and all those cut to 135 makes him look terrible during the process. As far as most people can tell, no one is really clamoring around them for one more title run. I don't know what it'll take to get both guys to hang up their gloves for good, but I do know that continuing down this path can only lead to long-term damage, and that is something no one wants. Along with UFC 245, we also had Terence Crawford versus Egidius Kavayakis for the WBO Welterweight Championship. Crawford started the fight as a southpaw, using it to get his reads, but also increases likelihood of hurting Kavayakis. But this also means he has more of a chance of getting hurt himself. So in the open stance, orthodox versus southpaw matchup, you have the inside lane and the outside lane. Inside meaning between your opponent's feet. Outside meaning outside of your opponent's lead leg. Crawford tested the inside lane, coming in with a jab, and then quarter turning to his left to get out of the way of the right counter. But being so close together left openings for exchanges, which Kavayakis began to take advantage of, winning many of those exchanges. Now here's the difference in commentary between boxing and MMA. When you have a dual exchange where it's 50-50, in boxing, that's considered bad. It's inappropriate and was confusing for the commentators. But in MMA, sloppy fighting like this is good, which makes me realize fans know whatever the commentators tell you. To change the culture and also educate fans on the science of fighting, we need better commentators in MMA. Anyone with two years of BJJ and Muay Thai can currently do the same job as most MMA commentators. Hell, even a guy from a bar can scream, Ooh! And... He's a wild man. Crawford eventually discovered he could hurt Kavayakis by increasing the pace and tempo and countering the counter. So I mentioned earlier how Covington was getting hurt because of his volume. That's the risk of high pace. But someone as seasoned as Terence Crawford actually wants that. Because when he came in with strikes, Kavayakis would counter. Crawford would dodge the counter and then counter Kavayakis's counter. This sometimes meant Bud would also get hit, but Bud Crawford had the better composure. And much like Usman, if you have better composure, you can think better while fighting, you have better gas, and you can actually see the strikes coming, allowing you to roll or brace even when getting hit. Counters are already rarely talked about in MMA, but counters of counters I don't know if I've ever heard them talking about that in the UFC, even though a bunch of great fighters do that all the time. Nobody's explaining to you what they're doing. They're just ooing and eyeing and saying how bad they must want it or how hard they're hitting or how explosive they are. Bud eventually finished the mean machine in the ninth round to retain his title. The pace, being on the back foot and fear of having your counters countered gassed Kavayakis. And when you're gassed and you're nervous, you can't take punches well. It's not a magic spell. It's more like you're too hyper-focused to see the strikes and you can't react in time to soften the blow. In the post-fight, Bud Crawford says something that's really important for young fighters and also fight fans to understand. Bud said his corner told him to stop loading up on his punches and just to let his hands go. So let's unpack that because in MMA, letting your hands go means to just start hitting hard, basically loading up and going balls to the walls and try to KO the other guy. But that's not how Bud's team meant it. So let me give you an example. When you hit mitts or a speed bag, or let's say you're just doing a cardio boxing or kickboxing class and you're throwing punches nonstop for time, how hard are you punching? You have intensity but you're not throwing so hard that it's delaying your next punch. In fact, you're punching more rhythmically so you can let your next punch go that much smoother and easier. And that's what's meant by letting your hands go. When you load up, you're telegraphing your punches and delaying the next punch in the combination 
you're also freezing a lot, which gives the opponent a chance to get off first. There's all these countdown shows and shows to hype up a fight coming up, showing the fighters training. And one of the things you'll see a lot is of fighters hitting mitts or doing pad work in MMA. And you see them throwing these long combinations. 90% of the strikes fighters drill are combinations. Yet in the fight, and in particular MMA, you see these same fighters mostly doing pot shots, a technique they never really drill or are even good at. So why does this happen? Why do you drill combinations only to throw single strikes? Because in the fight, they aren't letting their hands go. They're loading up, which only allows them to throw single shots because there isn't enough time to throw the next one without getting hit. That's what was happening to Crawford until he began to let his hands go. And that's when he began to beat Kavayakis to the punch and hurting him. You only need milliseconds to make all the difference in a fight. This is why I recommend for those who love MMA to watch other sports to get a greater understanding of MMA. Not just submission grappling or kickboxing, but also boxing and really also basketball, football, baseball, tennis, soccer, the list goes on. Because trying to understand MMA with only MMA is trying to learn U.S. history by only studying U.S. history and never paying attention to world history. You will only see the trees, but not the forest. This is not only important for understanding the business side of MMA, like unions, but also to have a greater understanding of athleticism, movement, and the difference between hobby level, amateur level, college level, and world level. Like I mentioned previously, if you never watch other sports, you might not even understand that commentary itself can be bad. Like try to explain to someone a problem you see in MMA. From the business side to a technical side without comparing it to another sport. It's going to be hard. It's like trying to measure how accurate a ruler is by using that same ruler. You're trying to use itself to measure itself. It doesn't work. And so if you have no other sports to compare it to, then you might not even see the problems. And the person you're trying to explain something to has never watched another sport, then how will they know what you're trying to say? It's something that's understood in linguistics. You can't explain something new without comparison. How would you, let's say, describe a chair to someone who's never seen a chair? You try to find something they've seen that's close enough to a chair and then start from there. And the more other things you know, the easier it is to comprehend something new. Joe Rogan constantly talks about how he knows nothing about other sports and has no interest in them. This is a point of pride for him, his ignorance. So he can't understand aspects of MMA he doesn't already know because it can't be explained to him. He knows what he knows. And unless he breaks out of his silo, he won't know what he doesn't know. It's probably like him trying to explain the anaconda choke to someone who's never watched MMA or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's true for the rest of us. We won't understand new athletic ideas unless we've seen it already in other sports. Think about athletic training or performance training. If you don't know anything about other sports, then your idea of athletics is just from bodybuilding, just big muscles, or from CrossFit or from just whatever you've seen on kettlebell videos or from fitness Instagram. And after decades of talking about strength and conditioning, that's basically still Joe Rogan's understanding because unless he takes an interest in these other sports, he'll never understand. And that's why when he talks about athleticism, he just uses the eye test. He just talks about how jacked somebody is. Look how strong they are. And he's overly impressed when somebody can endure or do something very extreme. Like he's very impressed by how long people can sit in a sauna or super long distance ultra marathons. Because if you don't know, then all that stands out to you is the extreme shit. I was trying to explain boxing footwork to someone who only knew BJJ. And I tried to use basketball as an analogy, but they didn't know anything about basketball either. So where do I begin? And so in explaining boxing footwork, even though Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is still considered a combat sport, 
it's easier for me to teach boxing footwork to a basketball player than it is to somebody who only does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So how much advantage does BJJ give you in understanding striking? The basketball player or the football player probably are better off. The only advantage you have as somebody who trains Brazilian jiu-jitsu is because you are adjacent, you probably have seen more MMA or kickboxing just incidentally. But that's not the same as your sport making you closer to that world. We can't know anything more about MMA than we already do unless we have enough sports knowledge base to compare things to and build upon. And if you've played a lot of other sports, it makes it that much easier to learn a new sport because you have enough knowledge to transfer. And if you've seen something done better in another sport, then you can apply it to your current sport, but only if you have that knowledge to begin with. Maybe that's the socialism of sports, but if combat sports is about the open market of ideas, then we have to use the methods that work best. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Find us on patreon.com slash southpawpod. Until next time, goodbye.